Welcome to In The Know, a podcast where the pulse of biopharma and life sciences meets the beat of brilliant women of color. I'm your host, Dr. Charlotte Jones-Burton, founder and president of WOSA. And on our journey, we're not just following the trends, we're setting them. From the latest breakthroughs in the lab to the hottest debates in the boardroom, we will meet the trailblazers, the disruptors, and the illuminators who are redefining what it means to lead. This isn't just about the science. It's about the stories, the journeys, the challenges, the dreams. Sharpen your mind, ignite your passion, rise above the status quo. Welcome to In The Know. I had a chance to catch up with Dr. Abana Osei-Wusu, interventional cardiologist, pharmaceutical clinical scientist and drug developer and entrepreneur. This is February, 2024, and it's heart month. On February 2nd, the American Heart Association has deemed it Go Red Day. Dr. Abana, welcome to In The Know. Thank you so much, Dr. Charlotte. It's an honor and a pleasure to be here. So as I mentioned, we take time during February to really focus on heart health. And um, I know you know, but maybe our listeners don't know that the number one killer of women is heart disease and the number three killer is stroke. So why is it important that we um, take time during the month of February to really focus on heart health? It's a fantastic question. And the main reason for this focus is exactly what you just said, is that heart disease and cardiovascular diseases are the number one killers of women in the United States and globally. And while many may think it's other things like cancer, uh, that's actually not true. Cardiovascular disease is very common. Uh, you will know your sister, your auntie, your mother, grandmother. It's every it's in everyone's family. Um, and again, it has a lot of impact in terms of causing illness and death and being the number one killer amongst women. So it's really important for us to focus and raise awareness during this time so that we can prevent excess death and illness related to cardiovascular diseases. Yeah, that's you bring up a good point. It reminds me of my grandmother, whom I go red for, who died um, of a stroke. And, and we do, in every family, have someone that we know who's either living with heart disease or, unfortunately, who has passed um, because of heart disease. Um, and then you also talk about um, you know, being able to prevent it. We'll talk about prevention uh, in a little bit, but maybe you can just let us know a little bit about, you know, how, um, if someone has heart disease, what are some of the symptoms of heart disease? Yeah, I mean, and I think it's, um, I'll actually speak more broadly to cardiovascular diseases, of, of course, heart disease. And when we say heart disease, most of the time we're talking about what we call atherosclerosis or the development of cholesterol plaque in the heart's arteries that feed the heart muscle. Um, but it can also include other things like heart failure, what we call cardiomyopathies, weaknesses or abnormalities in the heart muscle, uh, anything that affects the heart that is pathologic. 
but it extends to your vascular system. So that is, you know, largely the arteries that take the oxygenated blood to all of your tissues within your body. And so that's why, for instance, um, stroke is included in this discussion. Um, peripheral arterial disease is also included in this discussion. But to focus on heart disease, which is, again, the most prevalent form of cardiovascular disease, um, it can look like many things. And in women, you know, there is some data that shows our, our symptoms may be a bit more subtle and can be different from what we call the, the classic or the textbook presentation. Um, it can feel like fatigue that is new. And many women will say, I have many reasons to be fatigued. Um, but if you are fatigued out of nowhere, it is something maybe to have further evaluated. It may be difficulty breathing um, and not extreme difficulty breathing, but just shortness of breath. You know, if you exert yourself or if you're doing your daily activities and you're finding that you're getting winded doing that, you may have discomfort in the chest. And I say discomfort and not pain because it's not always painful. Um, it can also be things like shoulder discomfort. I think when you're getting new discomfort that is associated with activity, it's always something to assess further. Uh, my favorite patient that I had with an unusual presentation of a heart attack had pain on the tip of her chin. That was her manifestation of her heart attack symptoms. So it could be that nausea is also very common, a reflux type of discomfort, like you feel like you're having really bad acid reflux is also really common, particularly when the, the right-sided artery of the heart is involved. So the symptoms can be wide ranging and also include dizziness, lightheadedness. But I think you know the long and short of it is that if you're feeling different, if you're feeling off and frequently if it's uh, associated with activity, um, but even when it's not, if there's sudden onset symptoms, you should evaluate them further. Wow. So I hear you saying you need to be in tune with your body and you need to understand or be able to sense if there is a change in you know your your usual. Um, and one of the things that you talk about for women is very common because we do spend, a lot of time doing a lot of things. We're running, we're taking care of children, we're working, climbing the yes. corporate ladder. We're taking care, some people are taking care of their elderly parents, not getting enough sleep. You may be up late at night doing your emails because you didn't get a chance to, to do those during the day. And oftentimes we're not sleeping, you know, seven to eight hours a night. And so we are tired. So when there is fatigue, as you said, which which is the fancy word for being tired, when you do have that, uh, if it's out of the ordinary or if it's new, it's important to not, you know, talk it away and say, oh, it's just because I've been doing all these other things and women should get that checked out. Yeah, absolutely. And I will say, you know, what I saw frequently clinically is that women um, have different responsibilities compared to men frequently in their families and in their households and tend to deprioritize their own health. And this leads to delays in care um, and frequently delays in the presentation for the evaluation of the symptoms in the first place. And sometimes that can lead to worse outcomes as well. And the, the reason why women have worse outcomes is definitely complicated and not only related to this, but 
that is the potential bad outcome that can happen is that if you delay the evaluation of, you know, any changes that you're perceiving, whatever might be happening to you has the opportunity to get worse. And so we should be prompt when we're experiencing changes. The worst that could happen um, or, you know, whether whatever way you want to look at it, the worst or the best is that maybe you're fine. Um, but what if you're not, you know? And so I say have a low threshold if you're feeling unwell in any way to be evaluated further. That's a great point. So what are the risk factors of cardiovascular disease? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. And uh, in general, when we're looking at cardiovascular diseases, we tend to put things into two categories of, you know, modifiable and non-modifiable risk factors. So for instance, the non-modifiable risk factors are things that you cannot change, your age, you know? So when you're uh, elderly, you know, our risk of cardiovascular diseases increases with age. So when you're over the age of 65, um, some genetic risk factors that that we are becoming increasingly aware of, but uh, are continuing to study like lipoprotein A, uh, ethnicity, uh, for instance, right? We know that um, black people in the United States carry an undue burden when it comes to cardiovascular disease and have worse outcomes. Things like this are the non-modifiable side. Um, on the modifiable side, we have things like smoking. You know, I would say in 2024, no one should be smoking at this point, right? We are really clear on how toxic cigarette smoke is, not only for your lungs, but for your vascular system. Um, the, the typical risk factors that are diagnoses that impact your risk of cardiovascular disease are things like hypertension or elevated blood pressure, um, obesity, type 2 diabetes, type 1 diabetes, right? Being a diabetic, having insulin resistance increases your risk of having cardiovascular complications, uh, chronic kidney disease. So um, they're all illnesses that essentially increase risk. Another major modifiable risk factor is high cholesterol. And so you'll see that if you are assessed to be either, you know, at a higher risk for having cardiovascular disease or you have established cardiovascular disease, the physicians taking care of you will look to modify those things that I just mentioned or at least stabilize them to decrease your risk of having any events in the future or further events if you've already had one. I think it's interesting how you talk about your physician and how your physician will will work to um, make some changes to modify some of the risk factors that you might have. It reminds me of a recent conversation that you and I had as we've been talking through in a loving way, as I of may course. say, <laughs> my health. And uh, I'm going through this period called menopause. And I know, you know, during menopause, um, cardiovascular risk factors can be heightened. Um, and we were talking about my cholesterol and you actually put that back on me. You were like, Hey, look, you need to, you need to be looking out for some of the things you're putting in your mouth because it's associated with your cholesterol. So can you talk yeah. a little bit about, um, <laughs> don't go into all the details, <laughs> sure. but talk a little bit about what people can do. Um, as it relates to their cholesterol, particularly in terms of diet, because I know now I know you are vegan. 
So let's yes. just put that out there. <laughs> put that out there and everybody might not be able to go to that extreme. But what are some things that you think people can do? No, it's a great question. And and like you, you know, I have a strong family history. Um, my paternal grandmother also uh, died related to a stroke. And there's a large part of why I'm a cardiologist. And things like our family history are non-modifiable risk factors. We cannot change our genetics. But what I used to frequently tell patients is we can change what we put in our mouth. And that is food, alcohol, cigarettes, okay? And a lot of your cholesterol level may be genetically determined, but in the U.S., a significant amount of what is reflected in your, your cholesterol, particularly the LDL cholesterol, low-density lipoprotein, or what we used to call the bad cholesterol, is related to, to diet. Uh, what we have come to understand over time is that plant-based diets, we won't even go as far as to say vegan, but plant-based diets are associated with improved health outcomes broadly, actually, but also cardiovascular uh, outcomes. And that is because consuming animal protein tends to come with consuming animal fat. And that consumption of animal fats can drive your cholesterol higher. So um, that is one thing you could do is, you know, frequently portion size is much higher than it should be when it comes to um, even consumption of, of animal protein. So if you must eat it, eat it in smaller quantities, um, avoid eating red meat because we know that that is not helpful uh, in general, right? When you look at the quote unquote blue zone diets, generally speaking, these are plant-based diets that lead to longevity and improved cardiovascular health in those who have lived that way you know, for all of their lives. They're eating predominantly plants. That's what should be on your plate. And if you must have um, forms of animal protein, you could consider things that are a little less bad for you like eating more fish, poultry, you should be careful about because it can also con uh, contain significant amounts of saturated fat as well. So, you know, again, I'm not telling everyone that they should become vegan, although I think we would be better and the planet would be better for it. But however you're eating, I think it's about, you know, growth and change over time. Um, start with, you know, making half of that dinner plate or lunch plate vegetables start with that, whether it's a salad or cooked vegetables, you know, that's something you could do. And then when you're looking at your consumption, are you really eating an appropriate portion for your body size? Um, I know people are very focused on protein consumption. Um, most people in the United States do not have a protein deficiency, very low risk of, of having that, but consider other forms of protein, plant protein, um, things that are less processed can also be, be helpful as well. So there's always room for optimization, even though I'm vegan, I'm always thinking about how I can optimize my diet as well and eating less refined carbohydrate. Food is complicated. Food is cultural, it is history. It is a lot of things, right? Um, but some of how we eat broadly, and I'm using the collective we because I think this relates to every ethnicity, we have many foods that are not good for our health. And maybe our ancestors could eat like that because maybe they were farmers and they would burn off all those calories when they ate them. But we are eating all of these things and sitting in front of computers, sitting in cars, sitting in front of the TV. It's a lot of sitting going on, okay? <laughs> right? So we have to yes. modify and adjust, you know? So maybe you eat it less frequently or you find more healthy ways to prepare foods with similar tastes. But 
we, we can't necessarily eat exactly how maybe the generations before us did. That That is so true. And there is a lot of sitting going on. And that brings me to the next thing that you can do, which is get moving. Maybe you say yes. a little bit about movement and how that can alter your cardiovascular risk. Yeah, exercise is, is an amazing thing. I mean, we know that when we exercise, a lot of things happen that improve our overall condition. But one of the things is that your blood vessels dilate and dilating is kind of opening up and relaxing. And, you know, regular aerobic activity can decrease your blood pressure over time because of the physiologic changes that happen in your body related to that. Um, and it's, it's good for so many different reasons, right? Um, making yourself stronger, improving your aerobic capacity, um, and so it's really important to exercise and stay moving regularly. We also know it's related to brain health too, right? And I think all of it is about, you know, keeping your cardiovascular system healthy and as healthy as you can. And it's about moving most days of the week, really five days a week is, is optimal. And it's, you know, we typically recommend about 30 minutes a day. Um, and that can be as simple as just walking. We're not saying go and do orange theory necessarily, right? Um, it's keeping active and moving. So a brisk walk. And if you're not in an area where you can walk safely, there are many walking programs that you can do in your home where you walk in place. So everyone's environment, the built environment can be a challenge. And that's one of the social determinants of health that we know has a lot of impact on your future outcomes. Um, but there are things you can still do even amidst these challenges. So moving regularly, and I tell people to move and find things that they like to do. If you like to mm -hmm. dance, consider Zumba, right? Um, if you like to run, do that. But if you don't like running, don't be like, I'm going to, I'm going to just start <laughs> running all of a sudden. Five times a day. And you are so cute because I I, lo I love watching you and your son, Sinem, doing your dance parties on Friday night. Yes. That's how I keep <laughs> it moving. I mean, dance is my warm up. I'm a Pelotoner and I, I'm happy to say that, you know, for me, that has led to very consistent aerobic activity and strength training and even meditation for, for me for three years now, and I've never been this consistent, but I am dedicated to my health and I prioritize my health. And many days, if there's nothing else that I do, I will at least exercise, right? And um, I do what I can. Some is better than none. So if you have to split that exercise and do 15 minutes here and 15 minutes somewhere else, that's fine. Just, just get it in. And you, I think it's addictive to a degree, right? You know, everyone talks about the endorphins you get related to, to exercising, but it's addictive in the sense that you will like how you feel. You will feel yes, better. Absolutely. Right. You will sleep better. Um, a lot of things improve, you know, you might find yourself being a bit more regular, for instance, right? All of these <laughs> things uh, can be related to increased physical activity. So do what you can when you can for as long as you can. And I think it's about incremental change, but very important to continue to move. Being sedentary is associated with a lot of things that are poor, that are bad for your health. 
Yeah, and I love that because, um, you know, a couple of things there that I think is important is to do what you love. And we know that music is cultural and we are yes. a rhythmic people. So being able to dance is something that brings us joy and we can get the younger generations involved and people, you know, our Absolutely. children are watching us. So yes. um, kudos to you for um, passing that on to your uh, son, because he definitely does love to dance. <laughs> yes, like like mother, like son, for sure. And also, <laughs> I want him to see that I exercise almost yeah. every day, right? And that he normalizes that, and he understands also why that why I do it. Um, because yeah, we we're also sharing um, behaviors with our children as they're as they're growing up as well. Yeah, that's great. And before we get to our closing. One other thing you talked about was sleep. And I know that one of the other um, modifiable behaviors um, that we can do is sleep and make sure that the quality of our sleep um, is there and that can help our heart health. Can you talk a little bit about um, the importance of sleep and what happens when you sleep? Why do we need to get sleep? Yeah, I mean, sleep, sleep is critical. And, um, you know, sleep disorders are also quite common. And one of the most common disorders associated with um, disordered sleep is sleep apnea or obstructive sleep apnea, um, as it's frequently referred to. And untreated sleep apnea can be really bad for your cardiovascular system. It raises blood pressure. So uh, frequently when we have people with sleep apnea, that is, an, uh, sorry, with elevated blood pressure, we might look at them and, and assess for sleep apnea because this is something that you can treat and you know you might try to chase it with blood pressure medication but if you don't treat the sleep apnea blood pressure will remain elevated and that leads to a lot of other issues so uncontrolled hypertension can lead to changes in your heart can lead to abnormal heart rhythms etc um, in addition to the damage it might cause to your brain and kidneys over time so that's just sleep and you know a sleep study is a very easy test to do, do within your own home or sometimes within a, a dedicated sleep center to get the diagnosis and essentially is looking to see if your oxygen levels are dropping during sleep um, due to an off and on or intermittent um, obstruction. And if it is, it's easily treatable. There's so many options these days. Um, I think the CPAP of, of yesteryear is behind us. You know, these really large masks that were super uncomfortable. They're very comfortable these days. And not only when you, when you treat the sleep apnea, do you decrease your risk of all of these cardiovascular issues, you will feel better. Most people who have sleep apnea that has not been treated, for instance, don't know how bad they were doing until they are on the other side of it and they start getting good sleep because the sleep that they were getting was not a restful sleep, was not restorative, et cetera. And they chronically existed in that state. So sleep is for restoration. This is what our body needs um, so that we can kind of keep going. And if you don't get adequate sleep, your body is just getting taxed unnecessarily, essentially, right? And so mm -hmm. um, this is one of the most important healthy habits that we can have. And also, again, 
you know, demonstrate to others like young children that getting sleep is important. And as much as we all have many priorities um, that take our time during the day, we must take time to restore ourselves. And if we don't, we pay a lot of consequences for it. Yeah, that's great. You got to bring it down. So sleep enables us to bring it down. And some of the things that I've been doing, because I did get this diagnosis of sleep apnea um, and had to be on a, a CPAP and I've, I've taken myself off of it. Don't talk about me, Dr. Abba, Doctor. But I, yes. <laughs> but I have been losing weight. I've been moving more. I've been turning off my... Um, my screen, my technology, mm. it's now set to go to grayscale. Um, and all that really helps me get into what I think is the the groove to be able to better sleep. And yes. then making sure that I am setting that alarm for seven hours, not, you know, five. I even have mm. been finding myself, oh, it's only five when I set the alarm and I see it's five hours and 30 minutes. I'm like, oh no, let me add another hour onto that. Yes. So being intentional about sleep um, has been something that I've been focusing on. I I love what you said about your sleep routine because I think that's so critical and how your sleeping area is, you know, where you sleep. And is are you in an environment that's conducive to sleeping as well? Um, that's in your mind, that's your physical space, that's all these things. So there are also definitely a lot of habits that we can have that promote good sleep that would improve our health. We've learned a lot today about you, about cardiovascular disease. As we end, maybe you just tell me a little bit in terms of how do you de-stress? Ooh, great question. Uh, I de-stress, one, prevention, you know, they say... Um, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. So try not to be stressed in the first place, right? So, um, <laughs> And things that help with that, I think are like meditation. And when I'm really doing well with it, um, making time for even just a five minute meditation in the morning to you know set your intention for the day. So that's the prevention side. But you know, like everyone else, you'll find your, yourself at a time where, yeah, the stress can start to get to you. Um, one is being aware of what stress looks like in me and when I need to decompress. And my decompression looks like travel. I love to travel and go to new places and experience new environments. Um, you mentioned dance. I love to dance. I've spent time as, as a professional uh, dancer in my, in my younger days. Um, cooking is a joy for me. You know, I really enjoy cooking and baking and I'm learning more and more to, to, cook and release or bake and release. I don't need to eat everything. Um, <laughs> all of these things and fashion fashion design is, is another love of mine. Um, so when I'm in that creative space, I actually find that that is a form of meditation for me and it brings the stress level down and I'm also enjoying what I'm doing. So having a variety of outlets and the exercise as well. I think exercise has kept me sane through the pandemic and beyond, right? It's a great way to release um, and you feel better on the other side of it. So I have a variety of ways in which I, I cope. You have a great, some great routines. I love that um, you talked about meditation, you talked about movement, you talked about your creative side, your sciences, but yet you also, and yet you also have this creative side. What's maybe a fun fact or two that you can share 
about yourself? Last question. Yeah, fun fact. Uh, I think the first fun fact is that I've been vegan since 1997. Um, I always like to say yes before the cool kids were doing it. And it's just a habit for me. It's not something I think too much about uh, these days. The other fun fact I think is related to my creative side that I have a fashion brand and uh, I'm actually really excited about being in pre-launch for it. It's an eponymous brand called Abanafra Designs that focuses on African-inspired professional wear and statement pieces. And it's, you know, bringing my love of fashion to, to customers. So the next time we talk, we'll have to talk about fashion and your design. I would love to sit yes. down and talk to you more about that. As we close, here are the three takeaways that I have. Uh, that I want those that are listening to us to make sure that they remember. Number one, cardiovascular disease is the number one killer of women. Number two, we can't deprioritize our care. Women have the worst outcomes as it relates to cardiovascular disease. And most of the time it's due to a delay in symptoms. So don't deprioritize your care. And number three, we can't change everything, but here's what we can change. What we put in our mouth, we need to make sure that we're being mindful of our food, increasing plant-based food as much as possible, staying away from alcohol and cigarettes. We can change our movement and we can change our sleep. So those are my three takeaways. Thank you, Dr. Abana, for spending time with me. It's been a pleasure. Thanks so much. Until next time, stay curious, stay informed, stay in the know.